Welcome to Thoughts in the Market. I'm Andrew Sheets, Morgan Stanley's Chief Cross-Asset Strategist. And I'm Jens Eisenschmidt, Morgan Stanley's Chief Europe Economist. And today on the podcast, we'll be talking about the outlook for Europe's economy amid possible rate hikes, business reopenings, and the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, April 7th at 3 p.m. in London. Jens, clearly we're dealing with a lot in Europe right now amid the Ukraine conflict, and I want to get into that situation and the impacts on the economy. But given that the European Central Bank is meeting in just a few days and there's speculation about possible rate hikes, let's start there. Maybe you could give a bit of a background on what we expect the ECB is going to do. Thanks a lot, Andrew. First of all, let me say that we don't expect any change at next week's meeting relative to what the ECB has been saying in March at their last meeting. They're essentially keeping all options open. They have started on a gradual exit from their very accommodative monetary policy. They have increased the pace of policy normalization at their last meeting, and we do not expect the ECB to change that roadmap now. Just as a reminder, the roadmap is asset purchases could end in Q3, and any interest rate hike would come sometime thereafter. And any decision on ending asset purchases and rate hikes is highly data-dependent. And that really takes us to the current situation. Inflation continues to surprise to the upside. We just had a 7.5 percentage point print in March. And this undoubtedly does increase the pressure on the ECB to act. At the same time, there are significant downside risks to the outlook for growth in the euro area, stemming essentially from the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And this puts a premium on treating very carefully with any changes to the monetary policy configuration. Hence, the emphasis on optionality, flexibility, and gradualism by the ECB. Jens, when you talk about gradualism, that implies that the inflation that we're seeing in Europe is more temporary, is more transitory, isn't going to get out of hand. Can you talk a little bit about what is different at the moment between inflation in Europe and inflation in the U.S.? I think there are lots of technical aspects that indeed you could be looking at on that question. But I think it's sufficient for our purposes here really to focus on the key difference. In the U.S., there's a huge internal demand component to inflation. While the same is not true for the euro area, where most of the inflation, you could argue largest part, is imported through energy. Another difference is that the outlook for the economy is slightly different. While you would say that in the U.S., if you're talking about an overheated economy with a very tight labor market, it's it's very difficult to see, you know, some sort of self-correcting forces bringing down inflation, which is why the Fed is embarking on a relatively aggressive tightening cycle. Here in the euro area, there is, of course, growth we see in 22 in our base case. But at the same time, we are far away from such an overheating situation and even we are here now relying increasingly on fiscal stimulus to keep the growth momentum going, given the high energy prices that are coming, dampening growth. So I think the situation is fundamentally a different one. And so Jens, maybe digging more into that growth outlook, you mentioned this rise in energy prices, there's uncertainty over the war in Ukraine. And yet in your team's base case, we see GDP growth in Europe growing about 3% this year, which would be pretty good by the standards of the last decade. What's behind that overall outlook? You're right. Our base case has the euro area economy growing by 3% in 22 on the back of the ongoing recovery from the pandemic, reopening in one word, which is lagged here relative to, say, the US, as well as due to the fiscal stimulus 
What we see increasing headwinds emerging, as you were just also referencing, we had a series of consumer confidence prints clearly affected by high inflation and the ongoing conflict. And we are watching attentively how this develops. Energy prices have skyrocketed. So while we stick to our base call for now, we think that the balance of risk is slowly migrating to the downside. As for the ECB, the projections presented at their last meeting in March are more optimistic in terms of growth than ours. Now, clearly, if the ECB's view of the world prevails, so growth comes in better than we expect, we think the ECB will start to raise rates as early as September this year. Contrary to that, we think that incoming data will disappoint the ECB, and this is why we have the first rate hike only in December. In any case, you can see the ECB is clearly on the path of policy normalization, the need for which is driven by the high inflation regime we are in, and even the less favorable growth outlook won't change that fundamentally. Jens, given that we were discussing the ECB, I'd also like to talk about what higher interest rates mean in Europe. How do you think about that debate? And do you see a scenario where the ECB might be quicker to take rates from negative to zero, but then pause at zero for a more extended period of time? I think this is a fair question, given that the negative rate experiment, if you want to call it, is really unique in its scope in the euro area. And there has been a lot of debate about the effect of negative rates on banks. And you can probably argue that rising or returning from negative to zero is a little bit of a different journey than just raising rates in positive territory, like what the Fed is going to do or is about to do now. So I'd say, while there are some merit in the argument that probably getting rid of negative rates in the in the front end will help banks and may be good for lending in some sense, I think overall our assessment would be increasing rates is something that detracts from economic activity. So Jens, you know, you mentioned some of the risks around energy supply, and I think it's safe to say this is the single biggest area of questions for investors who are who are in Europe or looking at Europe is how would the region respond to either cutting off its imports of gas and oil from Russia voluntarily or this disruption happening involuntarily? What would a complete cutoff of Russian oil and gas mean for Europe's economy? And how does somebody in your position even go about trying to model that sort of outcome? So we have, of course, tried to get our head around this question, and we have published last week a note on exactly that issue. The typical approaches or the approaches that we have as economists here is really, you look at the sectoral dependencies on these flows of gas and oil, say, uh, you make some assumptions. And of course, it gives rise to ranges which are relatively wide. What we can say with certainty is that in a scenario of a complete cutoff of Russian supplies in terms of oil and gas, we are very, very likely in recession in 22 in the euro area. And we are really talking about a significant recession risk. While only through higher energy prices, so oil going direction of 150, but you know, other than that, Supply still flowing. We also see a huge dampening impact on the economy with a shallow recession emerging, not as bad as we would see in a total cutoff scenario. But I have to admit, there's huge uncertainty. But Andrew, I was going to ask you a similar question. As a strategist looking at different asset classes around the world, what's your team's view on Europe? Well, thanks, Jens. So I think, unfortunately, the outlook for Europe, as you mentioned, has deteriorated since the start of the year. This Terrible conflict in Ukraine has introduced additional uncertainty 
and binary risks to Europe around energy security that are difficult for investors to price and to discount. So we've lowered our price target for European equities, which now leaves very limited upside versus current prices. And I think the region is now less attractive than something like Japan, for example, where I think you still have some of the same positive arguments that apply to Europe. The valuations are low. The currency is weak. Investors, I do not think, are are overly positioned in the region, but with less risk around aggressive central bank policy and with less risk around energy security. So for those reasons, we now think Japan is, is going to be the outperforming market on a global basis. So Jens, all that said, the war in Ukraine is a wild card for our forecasts. What are the developments or indicators that you and your team are going to be watching? We are really dependent on what's happening in the political sphere, given that the cutoff of energy supplies will be either a decision by Russia or by the EU to no longer accept delivery of any gas or oil or coal. And obviously, this is a political process for which you have many ingredients So you would want to watch these ingredients, some of which are essentially in the conflict itself. So I think we are attentively watching the developments that the conflict is taking. And there, for instance, the news flow coming out of potential war crimes that certainly has not helped the case of energy supplies flowing freely. So there is a discussion right now in the European Union to restrict import of coal. And I think it's exactly these sort of developments that you have to be watching. Another space that we intensively watch is energy markets, because high energy prices are so detrimental for the growth outlook. And, you know, might remind you, we have one scenario, our so-called bear scenario, which sees energy prices almost as high as we have seen them or higher a little bit, maybe as we have seen them in early March. That is a scenario which would get us very, very close to recessionary territory. So in some sense, it's a situation where we have to watch the energy markets as much as we have to watch the political scene and see how this conflict evolves. Well, clearly a lot that we'll need to follow. Jens, thanks for taking the time to talk. Great speaking with you, Andrew. And thanks for listening. If you enjoy Thoughts of the Market, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with a friend or colleague today. The preceding content is informational only and based on information available when created. It is not an offer or solicitation, nor is it tax or legal advice. It does not consider your financial circumstances and objectives and may not be suitable for you. Important note regarding economic sanctions. This research references a country or countries which are generally the subject of comprehensive or selective sanctions programs administered or enforced by the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, the European Union, and or by other countries and multinational bodies. Any reference in this report to entities, debt, or equity instruments, projects, or persons that may be covered by such sanctions are strictly informational and should not be read as recommending or advising as to any investment activities in relation to such entities, instruments, or projects. Users of this report are solely responsible for ensuring that their investment activities in relation to any sanctioned country or countries are carried out in compliance with applicable sanctions.